Hi everyone, Will here. We'd be remiss if we didn't address off the top that this episode was recorded shortly before Politico published a draft majority opinion that appears to suggest that the U.S. Supreme Court intends to overturn Roe v. Wade. I know that this is weighing very heavily on everyone's mind now, especially for our American listeners. There are many more qualified voices than us to talk about this issue. Right now, I'll just say that if you're feeling anxious and even hopeless, it's important to remember that none of the institutions who devised this ruling should be regarded as legitimate, nor should the ruling itself if it officially comes to pass. We also know that none of this represents the will of the vast majority of the U.S. population. This knowledge can only be so comforting at a time when these institutions have so much power and so much power to enforce this potential decision, but I think it's still important knowledge to have going into the next stage of this struggle. In the show notes, we'll be linking to an article that lists some of the many abortion funds you can donate to right now. If you're able, we'd encourage you to join us in donating. Now, without further ado, on with the show. Here we come, walk down the street, we get funniest looks from everyone we meet, hey hey we're the monkeys. Welcome to Michael and Us, I'm Will Sloan, here as always with Luke Savage, welcome back folks. A couple months ago we watched one of my favorite movies, Godzilla, the 1954 Japanese original, and anybody who knows movies knows that Godzilla is an example of why movies are an interesting art form. It's like the bombs are dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. Nine years later, Japan starts producing 30 straight years of movies about giant monsters destroying Japan. I mean, as the great man Gene Siskel once said, movies are the national dream beat. <laughs> uh, and, and, and he was right in his corny way. <laughs> yeah, employing that uh, cornball eloquence for which he became known. Here's my impression of Gene Siskel. Ahem. We've said it again and again on this show. You've got to start with the script. <laughs> and what Sylvester Stallone needs to realize is it's his fans who are missing out. It's my impression <laughs> of Gene Siskel. <laughs> yeah, you're fully on Team Ebert, aren't you? Anyway, Godzilla, the original, had several different versions over the years. Two years after it came out in Japan, it was released in America in a version called Godzilla King of the Monsters, where they cut 40 minutes of the original footage out, and they added 20, 25, minutes of new footage with the American star Raymond Burr playing American reporter Steve Martin. This is before a certain other Steve <laughs> Martin rose to prominence. Uh, and he was an American reporter in Japan who just happened to be good friends with Dr. Sarazawa. Uh, he was never on screen at the same time as Dr. Sarazawa. Uh, he was always meeting with characters and them saying, oh, Dr. Sarazawa, we'll see you later. In the meantime, look at this <laughs> conference over here just off screen. <laughs> so, you know, you'd be seeing the characters doing their thing. They'd be on the boat to Godzilla Island or whatever, and he'd be just off to the side on the boat like, uh, excuse me, translator, what was it that that man just said? It was like that. Not, not the best way to see the movie. But then in 1977, there's there's an even lesser known version of the film, which I just saw. It was released in Italy, and it was prepared by this Italian, uh, I don't know how to describe him except garbage merchant named Luigi Cosi. His films include Paganini Horror and Contamination, various other films of ill repute. But he made this colorized version of Godzilla 
the King of the Monsters version with Raymond Burr that's really more of a remixed version. First of all, it came out before colorization technology had reached the the dizzying heights that it's reached now. <laughs> you know, it looks it looks great now when you see a colorized movie. But back then, the only way they could do it in 1977 was to apply certain gels directly to the film itself. So basically, when you watch his version of Godzilla, if somebody is looking out the window and it's a fiery Godzilla scape outside the window, like they'll sort of dye half the frame orange and then the other half of the frame will be blue, dark inside, but it's fiery orange outside it has this weird kind of psychedelic effect that makes it look sort of cool at times and sort of not very convincing most of the time but the main thing that he did the uh, the reason i'm bringing this up was he cut a lot of footage out of the movie and he added some of his own footage so the movie itself is barely comprehensible he didn't cut any raymond burr scenes by the way all those are still there But he opened the film with a montage of footage of the actual bombed-out Hiroshima. You see these very disturbing aerial shots of a helicopter coming from outside the city towards the city center, and you just see the devastation get worse and worse and worse the further you get in. You see pictures of charred remains, you know, terrible stuff. That's how it starts. Then the opening credits roll, then Godzilla starts. And then later in the film, during Godzilla's second raid, he spliced in, again, actual scenes from the Hiroshima and Nagasaki disasters. So Godzilla will be stomping, you know, he'll be doing his thing, and then it'll cut to, like, the bodies and stuff. It's genuinely horrifying, and it's why, you know, this is this version of Godzilla from 1977, uh, it sort of positions itself as the perfect movie to take drugs to, um, except that... There are these several moments that are just guaranteed to make your drug experience horrible. The reason I get into this is because, well, it's it's a it's an interesting artifact, but also it goes to show just how fragile that national dream beat quality of cinema or really any art form is. Godzilla himself is a very blunt metaphor, isn't he? Like, there's no mistaking what the metaphor is. And yet... It's not literalized on screen, and it actually emerges from a specific time and place and atmosphere that was in Japan at the time. And it's also, it comes nine years after the attack. It's unresolved trauma, but there's also been a certain amount of processing of the trauma. So enough time has passed that people are ready to see these images. But then when you actually drop the footage in, it's destroyed instantly. It bluntly literalizes an already blunt metaphor And these scenes only amount to like, I want to say two or three minutes of this version, but they totally throw the thing off its axis. And it goes to show how fragile art can be. Now, folks, you may be wondering why this is on my mind this week. Uh, First of all, I wanted something to talk about at the start of the episode. But secondly... We are making content here. Yes. uh, We got to keep shoveling coal into the furnace. (laughs) But secondly, the movie that we're talking about is Head from 1968, a musical comedy directed by Bob Rafelson of Five Easy Pieces fame, written by Jack Nicholson, who I think you've heard of. uh, Co-written with Rafelson. uh, The Joker himself, and starring the monkeys and this is a rage against the machine from the machine i was thinking about godzilla and this movie together and i'm not actually really drawing any close parallels between the two of them but you know these are two movies that i love so much because they are bluntly political but they're also well they're things that emerge from the ether of a certain national mood they are political but they're also just a sort of stew it's as if the culture just just had to produce something like this and it didn't quite know why it was producing it or for, or for what ends it's just the time and the people were there to produce something like this columbia pictures presents 
The Monkees. Mickey, Davey, Mike, Peter in Head. That's right, Head. What's it all about? Only Victor Mature's hairdresser knows for sure. Are you kidding? <laughs> Looks like a nice guy, and I like his smile. Go on, see if you can hit me just once. Just once. So we're going to tell you about Head, which is an absolutely remarkable film. Uh, completely bombed at the time, was not well received. It is a kind of, you know, surrealist acid trip of a film starring the monkeys. Before we get into uh, this movie and what makes it so strange and special, I think we should kind of set the scene a little bit by talking about the monkeys. I mean, I'm assuming all or most of you listening are broadly familiar with the manufactured pop group from the 60s, the monkeys. That's right. Just four lads from Liverpool who came together and changed music history. Well, it's funny you should say that because uh, the monkeys who who came together, I mean, they, they were a manufactured group that was put together for this TV show. And uh, the inspiration for the TV show, which I think auditioned in 1965, I mean, so that was the same year that the Richard Lester directed British New Wave Beatles film, A Hard Day's Night, came out. And so, you know, uh, some suits thought, well, hey, you know, we can cash in on this. Like, you know, there's this kind of uh, burgeoning youth culture, pop music, that seems to be a thing, you know, rock and roll, like, you know, let's let's create an airsats version of this and let's cast a bunch of guys we'll go around you know quote unquote digging things calling things hip and all the rest of it kids will like it there was something happening in official culture at the time where there was this youth movement there was this strange burst of energy the traditional models were failing people were not going to see hello dolly and the numbers <laughs> that they used to this movie i think comes out around the same time as easy rider easy rider is an example of the kind of thing that just like befuddled the suits they were like why are people going to see something like this but there were just so many strange cultural artifacts of the time like i don't know if you've ever heard of a movie called skidoo no it was directed by otto preminger who's one of the great hollywood studio directors became a very visible sort of auteur making big budget star driven literary adaptations and he made this movie called skidoo which was uh he wanted to give this to the youth culture this was his gift to the children and uh it starred jackie gleason as a thief who goes to prison and drops acid and the cat includes uh, Carol Channing and Groucho Marx and uh, Mickey Rooney, Cesar Romero, and in a concession to youth culture, Frankie Avalon. Uh, that's right, the coolest young singer alive, Frankie Avalon. And it's this weird hippy-dippy movie where, again, Groucho Marx smokes pot and Jackie Gleason drops acid. And the trailer featured Timothy Leary. I, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's like, I've just seen a groovy new movie, and I think everyone's <laughs> going to want to tune in, turn on, and drop out to see it. <laughs> uh, and it had a soundtrack by Harry Nilsson. And actually, a really funny story is he wanted Bob Dylan to do the music to it, and Bob Dylan came to see it uh see the rough cut and then he left he didn't say anything and then he called the next day and he was like hey uh, can i see the movie again so he comes with his wife this time and they watch it again again they leave without saying anything preminger never hears anything again <laughs> finds out like a year later bob dylan really liked some of the furnishing in one of the scenes of the movie and he wanted his wife to see it so that they could like get some inspiration for decorating <laughs> their house was not interested <laughs> in the movie at all anyway that's the kind of thing that was happening in this very confused time on the youth culture and the kind of wider turn that uh, that the beatles signified i might have talked about this on the show before but you know when i was 14 or 15 and i was first listening to the beatles i was really into this documentary that was just a documentary about uh, the beatles first u.s visit right so it's it's got lots of great 
footage, including, you know, the the two iconic Ed Sullivan performances, another one they did, I think, possibly at Madison Square Garden, something like that. I can't remember the venue. And so I'd seen all this footage. Some years later, my friend and I, you know, he, he has all these, like, old VHSs in his basement. Uh, and he had this one that's of the Beatles' Ed Sullivan performances, but it's of just the episodes, like the full episodes of Ed Sullivan that the Beatles performed on. And it puts the footage of them playing, you know, and, you know, the Beatles, you know, this is 1964, right? So, I mean, this is the Beatles. This is way before, you know, Revolver or Sgt. Pepper or even Rubber Soul. You know, this is the Beatles at kind of their poppiest phase. And when you see the performances in the context of full episodes of Ed Sullivan, so when you see them against the backdrop of what else was on TV at that time and what even was on an episode of the same show they were appearing on, it really is a way of being transported back in time and realizing just how novel this was and how kind of oddly transgressive even a song like Can't Buy Me Love or something is in terms of how, you know, it looked and how it sounded. I mean, I'm not joking, but one of the episodes, possibly the first one they were on, has a performance where somebody is literally uh, doing a rendition of How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? And then what you're seeing on screen is like a dog jumping through like a hoop or something that someone's holding low to the ground. Like that was televised entertainment in the, you know, early 1960s. And yeah, you know, we remember the Beatles, but like that was most televised (laughs) entertainment. And there was also like... There was entertainment that was backlash to all of this. So like when Elvis was so big, then Pat Boone comes along and he's like, he's like an Elvis that that's good. He's an <laughs> Elvis that, that you can show to your mom, you know? <laughs> which, which is, by the way, is so funny because Elvis was already just an antiseptic version of stuff that like Delta Blues men were doing before that was way better and way more interesting. In the 70s, you know, conservative parents can watch like Tony Orlando and Dawn and be like, oh, Tony Orlando, he's a nice kid. He's <laughs> (laughs) sings he sings nice music not like not like all of this stuff maybe the kids are all right it's like in the in the in the early 50s when bebop was a thing and like middle class white people like they're like i don't like that charlie parker the music's it's all fast and violent and i feel like drug culture is attached to this in some way and then wouldn't you know it the culture is like okay well here there's this thing called swing music and it's (laughs) really it's jazz but you know it's safe and it's it's not gonna scare you about a year ago i was visiting my parents and on like like PBS in the afternoons, they used to play this show called The Lawrence Welk Show, which perhaps our older listeners will know about. It was this like... Yeah, I have no idea okay. what that is. It was this very like... Je- it sounds like something that is only on TV at your parents' house. I'm amazed that they're still playing it on PBS in the afternoon because this was for old people even at the time. It was this very like gentle music show where... Like, there'd be these musical performances. Imagine, like, Ed Sullivan, like, taking down a couple notches. They'd have these musical performances, and on the episode that I saw, one of them was Deo, you know, the Harry Belafonte song. Uh But it was, the scene was a bunch of, like, white people on a raft in what was supposed to be an African scene. Right. Later later covered by our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, famously. Yeah, well, he's he's very interested in other cultures, isn't he? (laughs) But on this on this uh, Lawrence Welk episode, it's like these white people on a raft, and they're surrounded by bananas and stuff, and they're like, "Dayo, dayo, daylight coming, me wanna go home." You can imagine people, sixty-year-old Nixon voters, watching this and being like, "Say, some of this music actually is kind of nice." <laughs> <laughs> 
And that was all of TV. The Lawrence Welk show is probably like in the top five Nielsen <laughs> ratings of 1965 or whatever. I mean, so we've digressed pretty far from the monkeys, <laughs> but I do think this is useful uh, kind of table setting. To add a little more context for the monkeys as a group before we get into the movie, they were assembled for this TV show. There were more than 500 people who auditioned. Some of those rejected include uh, the great Stephen Stills, who of course would have tremendous success as a songwriter in his own right, and most famously with uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Danny Hutton, who was eventually in Three Dog Night uh, shortly after, both rejected. There's a popular urban myth that Charles Manson uh, auditioned and was nearly in The Monkees, uh, totally made up. I think one of The Monkees made a joke 20 years later that was like, oh, everyone auditioned for The Monkees, and that was the birth of that. But anyway, they had, you know, all these guys come into the studio to uh, audition. Uh, you can find the original screen tests that the guys that were eventually cast as The Monkees did. Now, the show itself, you know, if you haven't seen it, there's full episodes on, on YouTube. It's kind of fun you know it's a it's it's basically a kid show the the monkeys kind of hang out in an apartment they're four hip uh, hip young guys and they do hijinks there's a lot of physical gags has a bit of a stream of consciousness kind of quality but obviously the other part of it is you know these songs which are performed by the monkeys originally in the sense that their vocal talents are being used they're not playing the instruments in the studios the songs are being written a lot of them by people like neil diamond uh, tommy boyce bobby hart i think carol king also wrote a few of the monkeys songs and she wrote some of them that are in uh, the movie Head. Mike Nesmith of The Monkees eventually wrote a few of the songs and uh, had, I think, a, a decently successful songwriting career in his own right. The Monkees pretty quickly had to kind of frantically learn how to play instruments because the show got big and they had to take it on tour. They weren't really good enough to be able to replicate uh, their studio sound. And my sense is that even at the time, you know, they were, I mean, they were hugely famous, but they were also kind of losers, right? I mean, there was all this talk about, well, they don't really play their own instruments. They don't really write their own songs. And there were all these rumors that they're not even singing the songs either. Now, this apparently became quite a crisis for them because their their label, Cold Gems, actually refused to tell the truth about any of this. So there was a kind of mythology that no one really seemed to buy around it. And in 1967, Mike Nesmith gave a press conference in New York City where he said, there comes a time when you have to draw a line as a man. We're being passed off as something we aren't. We all play instruments, but we didn't play them on our records. Furthermore, our record company doesn't want us and won't let us. So the monkeys who were created as this prefabricated group, I mean, really, in some ways, as the first prefabricated pop group like this, you know, were very quickly engaged in a in a struggle for, you know, to have any creative control over this thing that they were uh, so central to. And these strange circumstances, I think, give an odd quality even to some of their popular hits. I mean, the monkeys as a band are a joke, but they're also not. Take a song like Pleasant Valley Sunday, right, which is one of their hits. What do you do with a song like that, okay? It's an ersatz version of a 60s protest song, right? 
A lot of the lyrics have essentially no subtext. Uh, oh, another Pleasant Valley Sunday here in status symbol land, you know, rows of houses that are all the same and no one seems to care. But the thing is, the song also totally slaps, right? It's a really tight song. It's got a great little riff off the top. Uh, it takes on a character of its own because of that. And it, so in retrospect, it ends up feeling neither totally ironic nor totally non-ironic, which I think is a very interesting space, especially for something that should be be just kind of fake from top to bottom. I think you can find that same quality in, in a lot of the other Monkeys hits. I mean, Last Train to Clarksville has that refrain at the end of the chorus where the lyric is, and I don't know if I'm ever coming home. You know, and it's clearly a sort of vague reference to guys who've been drafted or something like that. You find this, I think, throughout the Monkeys TV show, just this kind of vague gesturing at things in the culture, at anti-war sentiment. Here's a joke I found on an, on an episode of the Monkeys, on an episode of the show, where, you know, the gag is one of them's playing dominoes, and the other one comes over and says, oh, what are you doing? And he flicks it over, and all the dominoes fall down. And I think Davy Jones comes over and says, what's that? And then the first monkey, I can't remember which it is, flicks the dominoes over, they all go down, and he says, Southeast Asia. So there's a lot of stuff like that where, you know, it's non-didactic, it is in many ways just sort of a commercially motivated ersatz version of a youth culture that was in, in a very ambient way, in a kind of generalized way, and also in, in another respect, in a very kind of organized and concerted way, very much against the Vietnam War, increasingly critical of the American empire. But obviously, at the same time, the monkeys are not serious political voices, and they're not doing serious political songs. And if anything, this is a case of the industry realizing that protest is a marketable thing. It should be part of the menu of what this period fabricated group offers. That's the strange space in which this movie head is conceived of and produced. You have on the one hand this manufactured group. On the other hand, you have this manufactured group that is increasingly insecure about the fact that they've had to live a lie. That their label has at least briefly tried to pretend that they are playing the instruments. It seems to at least be uh, implying that they're writing the songs. The monkeys at the same time have actually had to learn to play their instruments. They all came from different backgrounds but Mike Nesmith and Peter Tor at least, were musicians. I think uh, Davy Jones had been a, a, a child star. I think, I'm not sure how successful he'd been. He was a racehorse jockey in the UK. Uh, Mickey Dolans, his dad had been, I think, a somewhat successful actor. At age 10, he'd been on a, a show. He'd had a kind of, I think, minor career as a child star. So those were the constituent parts in which, uh, you know, the monkeys were cobbled together. They may have to some extent been aware that, you know, some of these other people that auditioned for the monkeys like Stephen Stills and the guy from Three Dog Night actually were enjoying successful careers as musicians in their own right. So with all of that set up, I mean, the movie Head is essentially about the monkeys deconstructing their own mythology. The genesis of the film was that uh, Bob Raffleson, who'd been involved in the creation of the show and who seems like an interesting uh, figure, you can watch a documentary with him uh, on YouTube. I think it's included in the Criterion edition of the film as well. Certainly made a number of very good movies. Yeah, and I mean, it seems like from the outset, he actually kind of understood. I mean, this is another complication in thinking about the monkeys, even from early on. It seems like Raffleson kind of was trying to sneak in certain things in a way that the TV executives weren't going to pick up on it. For a few years, he says off the top of this documentary, his life had been completely just immersed in the creation and success of the monkeys. And a lot of people asked him, you know, why he would want to make a movie. And he says uh, pretty much verbatim, I felt there was one thing missing from the monkey mythology. 
on a commercial level, he says the monkeys were a sort of multimedia tie-in project and they hadn't made a film yet. So he wanted to do that. But there was another motivation, a more artistic one, where he said, you know, the thing missing from the monkey mythology was the truth that hadn't been told, the quote, the truth of the accusations about the monkeys not singing their own songs and the wider adult assault and their sensibility. He says, I wanted to make a movie about that. Uh, in other words, expose the monkeys and my relationship to them as truthfully as I could, though in a very abstract manner. He said, I felt it was an opportunity to do something on the continuum of the American avant-garde of making movies with the monkeys of all things. Nothing could be more contradictory in a way. So with that in mind, he courted Jack Nicholson, who, you know, some of you may not realize, you know, actually had a career sort of before he was the Jack Nicholson we know today and was involved in a number of films, some of which were quite bad, I understand, and some of which were interesting. Well, for about 10 years before Easy Rider, he really worked a lot with Roger Corman, who some of you may know as the quintessential American exploitation filmmaker. One of Nicholson's earliest roles was in Corman's original film, Little Shop of Horrors. Nicholson became part of Corman's stock company of actors, basically people who would work very cheap, who were also actors. You can see him in a movie called The Terror, where he plays a French soldier who finds himself at Boris Karloff's spooky mansion. I mean, it's it's quite a bad performance. It's amazing when you see Easy Rider, how the Nicholson persona clicks into focus in a way that it never had in the 10 years before that. But for a while, Nicholson thought he wasn't going to make it as an actor, so he thought, well, maybe I can make it as a screenwriter. One of the movies he wrote was an interesting film that Roger Corman directed called The Trip, which was literally an attempt to create a feature-length acid trip on film. It stars Peter Fonda as a middle-class bourgeois TV director who drops acid and then, you know, goes through a whole trip and is reborn. That movie was a huge hit, as were several other counterculture-themed Roger Corman movies at the time and were part of this ecosystem of youth culture movies that were coming out of Hollywood. A lot of these people like Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda were sort of orbiting around that Roger Corman drive-in world and Easy Rider was this moment where that generation of people briefly took over Hollywood. Right, so I guess it, in some ways Head is part of that continuum and not just because uh, Jack Nicholson was involved. Anyway, it seems like Raffleson had to court Nicholson for a while. He'd never heard of the monkeys. He didn't know what's, which is an interesting wrinkle in this. He didn't know what the monkeys were. During a meeting with the monkeys, uh, in which at least Raffleson and Nicholson dropped acid, it was decided that they would try to make this movie. They would sit down to write it, and they would try to have it kind of basically replicate an acid trip. Um, so they began to write uh, the movie, interestingly, in Harry Dean Stanton's basement, where I guess Jack Nicholson was staying at the time. They came up with these kind of very weird images, again, I assume under the influence of, of LSD, and it seems like wrote a screenplay which tried to capture all these, all these kind of weird random associations they were having, and from that, Head was born. Something else they decided to do in the casting of the movie was put people in it who, in Raffleson's words, were people that the American public would liken to the monkeys in terms of their status. So these are not people who you would have heard of, but... Well, some of them. I mean, Annette Funicello is the top-billed female star, and she had probably a similar cultural status to the monkeys. She was a Disney teen idol. She's Miss Mickey Mouse. That's right, on the Mickey Mouse Club. And then she and Frankie Avalon had this series of beach party movies, like Beach Blanket Bingo, How to Stuff a Wild Bikini, stuff like that, which I guess were very popular drive-in movies for teenagers in the early 1960s, but were, were definitely considered lowbrow culture. 
in addition to her, though, there are a lot of like disparate cultural icons in the film. Victor Mature, who was a sort of wooden Hollywood star. I think his best known movie is probably the John Ford film, My Darling Clementine. He's in the film playing the big Victor. He appears several times in several different contexts as like a 50 foot version of himself who terrorizes the monkeys. And he has no lines. Sonny Liston is in the film. Frank Zappa appears briefly. You also get to see uh, briefly on screen both Jack Nicholson and Dennis Hopper, which is funny. Just to tie all that up, what Raffleson said about the casting is that he cast, quote, a chorus of losers and people with bad reputations, who I personally liked, uh, which is fun. So the movie doesn't have a plot. It's a series of vignettes drifting through various realities connected by a sort of dream logic and by the presence of the monkeys. It opens very forcefully. There's this montage of TV screens showing different images, some of them very banal, some of them very loaded. You hear the monkeys singing a tweaked version of their theme song that's more self-deprecating, that talks about their status as a manufactured group. And there's this very striking shot where, you know, there are like 20 TV screens on screen at once and 19 of them show that iconic image from the Vietnam War of the man being shot in the head. And then the screen in the bottom right corner shows a woman at a monkey's concert screaming. And then it sharply transitions to a monkey's concert where the monkeys are performing. We see the ecstatic response of the all-female audience and it keeps cutting back and forth between that and footage from Vietnam, often atrocity footage. Yes, the monkeys are on stage and they're playing this kind of psychedelic rock. And the thing that's so incredible about the scene is it really is saying, while we're doing all this bullshit with manufactured pop groups and psychedelia, you know, our government is on the other side of the world committing mass murder. There was another comment here from Raffleson that I think is germane. I think in some ways you can read this movie as kind of a reaction to both the horrific events that were occurring at the time, but also the fact that for so many people they were being communicated through the medium of television. And what Raffleson says about that is television makes you a nerd to reality. You know, it brings current events into your living room, but then the result is that you don't have to deal with them. And so that's a theme that you kind of see throughout the movie again and again. Just these shots of this kind of, you know, celebrity spectacle with this manufactured group interspersed with all this grisly war footage. The implication being that these exist in the same reality. People are flipping channels. They see both of them and they essentially have, you know, the same reaction. Like their emotional reaction to the seriousness of one of them is entirely dulled by their reaction to the other. Because when a series of sounds and images come through your TV sets, that has a flattening effect on what they actually contain and, and kind of the weight of it. There was a part in that scene, you know, you'd seen this movie more recently than I had. I hadn't seen it for probably over a decade. And you said, oh, we're going to see that scene of the guy getting shot in the head again in a moment. So brace yourself for that. 
But then when it occurred, it wasn't as shocking as I expected. And I'm not sure why that is. Is it because the image is so iconic at this point that it's become like the Andy Warhol silkscreen version of itself? That's exactly right. It's it's uh, for exactly the reason Raffleson says. It's because the iconic status of something like that as something that is now like, if you were to open up a Time magazine retrospective on the Vietnam War, you might actually see a version of that image. That actually has the opposite effect that you might think. Well, it's funny. When and there's all of those shots of the TV screens, all of them showing that image, except the one that shows the woman screaming. There's something jarring about that. There's something shocking about it, about the juxtaposition. But then by the time I saw the image again the second time, it wasn't shocking anymore when it was interspersed throughout the concert. Yeah, and I feel like the film is aware of that. And that's one of the reasons why, despite not being a conventional narrative film, it kind of takes on a bizarre energy that's its own and kind of returns to this theme again and again and explores it in a quite interesting way. Well, the movie is never again as corrosive as it is in the first 10 minutes. It becomes, I think, a little jollier for the rest. It's certainly full of scenes that have loaded imagery. There's a scene early on where like Mickey's in the desert and he's looking for water and he comes across a Coca-Cola machine and he starts beating the machine and eventually a tank materializes and he's able to blow up the Coca-Cola machine. Like, Not get the Coca-Cola, just blow up the machine that won't give him the Coke. It's like the movie is full of sort of absurdist scenes like that that seem laden with significance, but which might not be. There's a scene early on where the monkeys are are in a war somewhere and the war, I mean, like a lot of the other scenes in the movie, it kind of breaks the fourth wall. Like they're both actually in a war and they're on a set. Yeah, and it's a war that's this pastiche of a lot of different wars. Yeah, when you look at it, it doesn't actually really, It's they're in trenches, so it's kind of like World War One. but they seem to be wearing sort of GI uniforms from the Second World War, yet the context for the film is Vietnam. So the thing has this intentionally staged quality, which again is, you know, a commentary on the bizarre space the monkeys fill as kind of this manufactured group that is increasingly insecure with their own airsatsness and their own celebrity. But also, I think, to some extent genuinely bothered by the fact that you know they're they don't get any respect there's one scene in particular that i think deals with that really well which is when the monkeys are suddenly thrust into this entirely black room and there's this kind of weird like black shag in front of them that looks like a really coarse carpet and they're asked to kind of climb up on it and dance around and then a voice off screen keeps saying come on you're supposed to be dandruff act like dandruff and then it cuts away and the monkeys are these tiny dots on the top of victor mature's head and then they get vacuumed up into this vacuum and all of a sudden you know they're in this ad that's advertising an anti-dandruff vacuum and so this is the film and the monkeys by extension saying like this is what we are like not only are we a cash grab but even within being a cash grab we're subordinate like within the ad we're the dandruff The movie's full of scenes and images where you look at them and say, uh, what are we supposed to make of this? So maybe I'll just raise some of these and ask you, what do you think we're supposed to make of this? Something that unites this movie with a lot of other youth culture movies at the time is this skepticism towards Hollywood, Hollywood history, Hollywood imagery. We see a lot of out-of-context scenes from older black-and-white movies. There's a there's a, a Western sequence as well. Yeah, there's a Western scene. There are various scenes where we find out the scene we're watching was actually a movie and you know the director will come in and break it there's also in one instance in a scene like that a moment where peter tort has to punch this guy on set who's dressed as a woman and then when the scene cuts he gets up and he starts protesting and he's sort of saying she doesn't dig it man it's not right 
it's not good for the image. The kids won't dig it. And I mean, there's so many layers there. I don't even want to try to deconstruct it. it. This isn't the fourth wall at this point. This is like we're breaking the sixth wall. There seems to be implicit in this film and some others, like the way that Easy Rider has its characters named after Wyatt Earp and Billy the Kid. This implication that Hollywood images are have sold us this lie. They've sold us this fake history. And now these images are being used to sell us the next big lie, the Vietnam War. And, and also, Hollywood images are being used to sell the monkeys, which we ourselves, the monkeys, are a lie. And so we're complicit in the same machinery, or we're, we're beneficiaries of the same machinery that have sold all these other lies throughout history. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I know Raffleson said that, you know, one of the reasons why he staged all these sequences that seem to borrow from different genres and periods in history and such was that he knew he was only going to get to make one film like this. He, so he said, I want to just cram all the types of movies into one film because I knew I was not going to get another shot at doing a movie like this. But in terms of what it means, I think you're exactly right. I think what the film is ultimately trying to convey and what the implication is, is that so much of American culture, so much of kind of what's served to you by Hollywood and by these big studios and by TV executives is kind of staged and curated. And I mean, I think that's driven home by things like the uh, war sequence that I mentioned, where the, the sequence is just a pastiche. It's not an actual war. It's, you know, war Hollywood style. It, it, it kind of combines all these different signifiers and reference points, but it's a facsimile. You know, it's an airsoft version of, of what's really going on, either in Vietnam or, you know, in other wars in which America's participated. And it's airsots in very much the same way that, you know, the monkeys are. I don't know if this fits in anywhere, but I'm curious what you think of the film's depiction of Eastern mysticism. There are a couple of scenes like that in the second half of the movie. Uh, there's a scene where uh, the boys find themselves in another black void-like room where one of them starts talking in the kind of language that if the Beatles talked about it in an interview, they would be taking themselves very seriously. But the movie implying imagine how ridiculous it would be if if the monkeys had their own maharishi you know <laughs> is that all there is to it or do you think the movie has sort of a wider disdain for mysticism i think it's all an extension of what we were just talking about which is that american culture is is all in some way staged or at least, you know, Hollywood is staged. The stuff you see on TV, the images you see on TV, and the movies you see, and the pop groups you're listening to, there's a process of production behind the stuff that you're not seeing and that's not being shown to you. This film wants to burst that bubble. And again, in a, in a kind of non-didactic way, I think it wants, it wants to burst that bubble with a view to saying, you know, none of this is real, but there's stuff in the world that is real, like what we're doing in Vietnam right now. actually know nothing about the monkeys uh is there is there anything in that discography that's really worth looking into what would you recommend oh i mean some of the hits are, i mean again i'll go back to what i said about pleasant valley sunday i think it applies to a, a whole bunch of the monkeys hits i mean they didn't play the instruments in the studio and a lot of the early hits i mean they just seem to have had nothing to do with writing them but some of the songs are pretty good i think last train to clarksville is a good song i think you know daydream believer is just a genuinely good pop song of the time I mean, because they were having real songwriters put this stuff together i I understand that the late Michael Nesmith was the actual good one. Like he was the Brian Wilson of the of the team. Can you speak to anything of what he brought both to the team and his solo work? Also, you mentioned before we recorded that the monkeys had a bit of a revival in the 80s. What did that look like? Yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about this. But yeah, they did have this strange revival in the 80s. I think in the 80s and 
I could be wrong, but possibly even the 90s. I actually think they they charted again. I know they reunited to tour in, I think, the mid-70s and in the 80s as well. And one of the strange things that happened sort of, you know, 10 or 12 years after they produced those hits and after this very strange and oddly self-aware film was made, people seemed to revisit the monkeys and kind of think, well, actually, you know, uh, these songs kind of are good. And, uh, and monkeys records started selling like crazy again in the 1980s. In 86, they had this single that was called That Was Then, This Is Now. Uh, and that went up to number 20 in uh, the Billboard magazine charts. There were these kind of subsequent waves of monkey mania, you know, over a decade after, you know, the monkeys had existed as this kind of manufactured group that, you know, people at the time dismissed that, you know, critically had absolutely little to no respect, all of which I think only adds a further wrinkle to the themes that are uh, discussed in this incredibly strange and uh, surreal film. 